In this episode of Creative Christians, author and pastor Mike Newman joins me to talk about writing. Does my writing flow out of my life because I'm a pastor? Honestly, being a pastor flows out of my life because I love Jesus. And my devotional niche in writing flows out of my life because out of all the things that have happened in my life, it is Jesus Christ who has made the greatest impact and difference and continues to on a daily basis. And because I have seen the remarkable grace of God and the presence of Jesus in my life, it has made such a mark on me that that is my niche and it's my hope and prayer that everybody can receive and experience what I've received and experienced. It just flows from who I am. That's Mike Newman today on Creative Christians. My name is Tim Risto. I'm a creative, a filmmaker and writer. I'm also a Christian. Many of my friends are also Christian creatives, writers, filmmakers, actors, musicians, photographers, and artists. Who are these people and how does their faith infuse their creativity? These are stories of creative Christians. Welcome to the debut episode of Creative Christians. I'm your host, Tim Risto. I am so glad you've chosen to join me for this new podcast series. This is truly a labor of love for me. I'm so excited about launching this show. It's, it's something I've been wanting to do for a very long time. And I'll get to the how and why this show exists and, and exactly what it's about in just a minute. But before we get to that and before I bring on my first guest... You may be wondering, who is this guy? You know, who, who am I? And that's a fair question. If you don't know me from uh, working together on a video project or uh, don't know me from Lutheran circles, Lutheran church circles, um, then you, you probably don't know me. And that's fair. First and foremost, I'm a Christian. I'm a PK, pastor's kid. My dad was a Lutheran pastor for well over 60 years. I grew up in the Christian faith. Lutheran denomination. It's a part of my life, has been for as far back as I can remember. More so a part of my life even than being a creative. But I am both. I'm a filmmaker, a producer-director who's been working in video production for about 33 years now. It's hard to believe it's been that long. And honestly, I've worn a lot of different hats over those years, from PA, production assistant, uh, to audio crew, to director of photography, I do script writing now in my business. Uh, I've been an editor, technical director. I've directed anywhere from um, you know three to up to five or maybe seven cameras. I don't remember for sure. Um, and then, of course, producer and director, uh, among many other roles. I've worked on big crews, small crews, large productions, small productions, and a ton of stuff in between. I've worked for big clients like National Geographic, History Channel, PBS, among others. Uh, and mainly a lot of small to mid-range clients as well. And that's where the majority of my career has been spent over the last couple of decades. I've been working as a solo freelance producer through my own business, Tim Risto Productions, during that time, producing a wide range of different types of video projects, largely a lot of documentary and promotional work for, for these small to mid-range clients. And as a result, I've interviewed a lot of people on camera somewhere over 1,500 people over the years. But I say all of this because over the years, I've discovered a common thread among these everyday folk I've interviewed. There's not a lot of time to get to know people off camera, but I did have little moments, you know, before or after an interview or on a break in between, and we'd engage just in small talk, you know, and I would learn more about them personally. I discovered during those moments that many of these people often had creative passions as well, gifts and talents that, you know, maybe they pursued on the side and that coincided with my own creative interests and gifts. So in other words, we were fellow creatives. And so even though while I was interviewing businessmen or pastors, social workers, teachers, what have you, 
for whatever the video project was that I was working on at the time. I also found out that at the same time, I was meeting flourishing artists, musicians, filmmakers, writers, actors, what have you. They were one and the same. And I found out they would get really animated talking about that side of themselves, sharing about their creative endeavors. So I decided that one day I wanted to develop a show where I would get to invite these very same people back to talk about their creativity. I, I wanted to give them a forum to talk about the creative side of their lives, particularly as it relates to, to faith. And this show, Creative Christians, was born out of that desire. And that's what this show is all about, Creative Christians. Christians being creative. Now, when I say that, I should clarify, I don't mean, you know, all Christians involved uh, everywhere being creative with ministry, just in general. That could be an interesting show, too, how are, how are Christians in general being creative with their ministries. That would be an interesting show to produce, but that's not this show. Specifically, when I'm talking about creative Christians, and what this show's named for, is Christians who are creatives. Specifically, those who are using their creative talents related to the arts or entertainment or media, and how they approach their craft or their passion you know, what, what they're creating, how they're going about being creative, the, the processes they use to approach their, their creativity, um, and, and how they use their talents and unique creations to glorify God or to, to minister. Um, that's really what I'm talking about. You know, these specific fields, like I've mentioned, filmmaking, music, arts, all of those type of things acting, writing, all of these things are areas that I think are just fascinating to, to explore the creative process. That's really my goal for this show, that I provide, number one, a forum for my guests to be able to share about the creative things they're doing, and number two, that the end result of having them on and my conversation with them, my interview with them, would result in some things that may inspire you listeners, and that you may be motivated to become creative or to grow in your creativity or just grow in your faith for that matter. That's my hope. My guest today is Reverend Michael Newman, writer and author, but he's also much more. Mike Newman was born in Chicago and he went on to study philosophy and biblical languages at Concordia University in Michigan, studied theology at Concordia Seminary, and has served in ministry since 1987. After more than 20 years in local church outreach, he began helping to catalyze a gospel movement in Texas. Before that, Mike also worked at Camp Arcadia on the shores of Lake Michigan and served as pastor at Prince of Peace in Palatine, across the lake and south from Arcadia. He currently lives in San Antonio and is serving as president of the Texas District LCMS, a role in which he has served since first being elected in 2018, and a role to which he was re-elected last year in June of 2021 at the Texas District Convention, which I attended. Mike loves writing, running the Texas roads, and spending time with his family. Mike has written a dozen books, including Struggle Well, Living Through Life's Storms, the Life You Crave, It's All About Grace, and Hope When Your Heart Breaks, those latter two we'll be talking a little bit about today for sure, and his latest, Getting Through Grief, Eight Biblical Steps for Getting Through Loss. I've had the opportunity to read several of Mike's books. They're all very, very good, and I'm so thankful and honored to have Reverend Mike Newman on the show today and to be my first guest on this new podcast series. Mike, welcome. Well, thank you, Tim. Sure, good to be with you on this inaugural episode. Yes, I love it. I love it. I've been looking forward to being able to sit down and chat with you about uh, your creative side. So we've we've uh, known each other over the years through Lutheran circles. I do some video work for 
the Texas district. Now, I'm sure there will be many listeners who uh, know you personally, what you do. But for those who don't, just let me clarify, you're not a full-time writer, of course. That's part of your vocation. It's part of what you do. You have a calling as a minister in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate. And in fact, uh, as I mentioned in the intro, our president of the Texas District of the LCMS. Before we go full speed ahead on your on your writing, um, tell us a little bit about you know your role as district president in your life. What what's that like for you? It's good, you know. Uh, it really is a pastoral role, so I get to talk with and work with a lot of the church workers, so pastors, teachers, directors of Christian education, other ministers. I work with uh, just serving churches as well, helping them to find new workers, that type of thing, and. Um, of course, being present to encourage, whether it's through preaching and teaching and various other roles. So it's good. I think it's a good uh, partnership. It's a support role for what our churches are doing. And in our district particularly, it's a role that helps cast the vision for continued mission and outreach. You know, Texas is all about reaching new people with the gospel of Jesus. And so what we do is we help strengthen congregations to do that and find this is more of a creative exercise, too, creative ways to bring the good news to people. So it's really an enjoyable role. Right. Well, you're very good at it, very well respected in the district, and uh, hope you continue to serve us for a long time. Well, thanks. So, uh, you're also married, have a family. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, Cindy and I have been married since 1983, so it's 39 years this year. Congratulations. We have two daughters, both married. They're both living in Texas, and our older daughter has a little girl who's going to be 11. She's our granddaughter. And then our younger daughter has a little boy who's two and a half and with another little boy on the way. So that's really exciting. Oh, my it's Nice gosh. to be a grandma and grandpa. Yes, no kidding. Exciting time. You were born in Chicago. Did you grow up there? Yes, grew up in the Chicago area, yeah. What was life like for you in the in the Windy City? Well, I was a Cub fan, so let's start off with that. That was going to be my first question. <laughs> we, finally, we finally won the World Series a few years ago. That proud, was, proud year. Oh, there. man, I'll tell you. I knew my grandmother in heaven was dancing when that happened. She was a Cub <laughs> fan since their first wins back in the early 1900s. Oh, so, yeah, Cub yes. fan, and it, it, was a, it was a suburb, but... Uh, it was pretty close to the city. My grandparents still had a store in the city, and a lot of my relatives lived in the city already, too. So, you know, my parents couldn't afford to live there, so everyone had to kind of keep moving outward. But it was good, uh, challenging in some neighborhoods we lived in, but a lot of opportunities, saw a lot of things, and overall it shaped me. Very nice. At what point in your life did you move to Michigan? Well, I went to college there. So I never lived there except for time in college. That's where I met my wife. And uh, her family had a little vacation cottage in a town called Harrison. So we started traveling there pretty regularly right after I met her. Then after we got married, when we had kids, that became our spot, little Shangri-La and a tiny little lake that I write about. So that was my exposure there. Of course, I did some backpacking in Michigan with my dad, uh, in, during college as well. So we've always loved Michigan. Awesome. I spent a little time in uh, Frankenmuth, Michigan, on an internship in college and uh, uh, interned at uh, St. Lawrence Lutheran Church there, a well known. One of the founding churches of the Missouri Synod, and Frankenmuth is a great town for some good chicken and German eating. Yes, there was uh, the two chicken restaurants, uh, Zender's and I can't remember the name of the other. They were like right across the street from each other, two family-owned chicken yes, restaurants. Yes, the brothers owned it, and mm -hmm. oh man, I'm drawing a blank too. Yeah, I can't remember the other name. It'll probably the come Bavarian to me. Inn, that was it. Uh, the yes, Bavarian Inn. Bavarian yeah. Inn. The Christmas store was Brunner's. Yes, the the world's largest Christmas mm -hmm. uh, store. Yes, yep. phenomenal place. I think it was what two football fields long or something oh, it's like amazing. that. It's, Continues to be amazing today. Yes, and that's one of those little communities. You know, we talk about uh, Harrison, and we'll talk about that later in your books. But uh, it's one of those little communities with you know. I think it's got some of the covered bridges, and it's got the you know the water wheel and, and the little river there. Uh, it's just very picturesque and. Beautiful little community. Oh, yeah. People who live there say that's really the way it is, too. I mean, they, yeah. they love it. Yeah. Close-knit place. Mm -hmm. 
My guest today is Mike Newman, pastor and author. How did you first get interested in in writing? I think I've always thought about it as something I've loved from earliest memories I have. Now, of course, when you're a kid, you can't really write, but that expression I've always thought about. And I remember just from earliest memories that I thought, I would love to write a book. So I've always thought about it. Then um, our teacher in third grade asked us to do a little card for our mothers for Mother's Day. And I thought, what's the best way to express myself but in a poem? And so I wrote a little four-line poem, I think, in a Mother's Day card in third grade. And my teacher was so surprised. You know, all the other kids wrote little messages like, dear mom, I love you. And I wrote this poem, and she just thought it was great. And I just felt a sense of satisfaction and expression in doing that as well. So that just kept going. It just naturally came out of me. If I would get an assignment in school to write I would write some sort of story or satire or do some parody. And my brother, I have two brothers, my older brother and I shared a room, and we didn't write it down, but we always had our imaginations going. So we would invent stories about things. We invented entire planets and universes and civilizations, and that was part of this process of just thinking creatively. That's awesome. I love that God has granted us imaginations and the ability to be creative. Similar to you, I didn't start with poetry, but I was always interested in that, like I mentioned earlier, you know, ability to create scenes and characters and things, just the opportunity to take things that you create and do what you will with them um, is just fascinating to me in terms of, of writing characters and things like that. Let's talk a little bit about some of your, your book ideas. You know, you've you've written at least a dozen books that I'm aware of. You know, where do those ideas come from? I'm, I'm, I'm assuming many of your books have been developed or, or you know, started in with sermon ideas. And I know, I think in, in Harrison Town or one of those, you mentioned using uh, some of the characters and situations there and kind of the pulpit was kind of a testing ground for, for some of those with your congregations. But, but where have your book ideas come from in, in general? Yeah. So the first actual book, so, you know, I'd been writing a lot, a long time before I actually wrote a book, all kinds of short stories or i mean sermons that's writing right you know you're you're using illustrations and methods and i've done poem sermons and all kinds of things like that because writing as you said it reaches people in different ways it reaches their hearts make them laugh make them cry think reflect uh, be taken surprised by driving home a point right that would come across differently in a lecture so but the first book actually didn't start as a book, I wanted to experiment in preaching with a narrative sermon. And I wondered if it was possible to just tell a story and have that contain everything that should be in a sermon, law and gospel and application, but not come off in a way of lecture, but kind of sneak up on people. And so they're, as they're living through the story, they experience and are convicted by the laws. They're living through the story. Oh, they're surprised and awed and moved by the love of Jesus, love of God through his son. Then as they're listening to the story, they're also moved to action or reshaping their life. So I thought, I wonder if that's possible, not to have a story be just part of a sermon, but actually a whole sermon. So I thought, well, I'm going to try to do it. I've, and I had been thinking about it for years, and I wondered what could be the setting, what kind of story could do this. And that's when my wife and I were up at this little vacation place with, yeah, it was both my daughters at the time, because it was the early 90s. And I thought this could be the place, little tiny Harrison, Michigan, nestled on the shores of Bud Lake. And my wife had told me some stories about her as a kid up there, and I experienced plenty. So I thought, maybe this is it, and we'll give it a try. So I wrote the first series of stories. I preached in series back then, and I think I experimented over the summer or something, just tried it. And people really received them very, very well. Uh, they they were interested, they were engaged. I had some critics, not everyone liked it. You know, some people like the expository point by point preaching, and so not everyone liked it, and I didn't do it all the time. But uh, the kids too, the young people. So when you have a junior high boy 
quote your sermon like five weeks after you preached it, you know something's getting through. And it, and he remembered the point, you know. So mm-hmm. I thought, okay, I think I'm on to something. I started then scattering those throughout the church year. I did that for a few years. And one uh, day we were having pastors come over to our church for a meeting, and we are starting with a little worship service, and I happened to be in one of these series. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to, I think it was Advent, I said, I'm going to try this out on these guys. I'm going to preach a story sermon and see what they think. Right. And I, I, some probably felt okay about it, maybe others didn't, but there was one pastor in the crowd, I dedicate the book partially to him, Charlie Mueller, who just loved it. He And I admired him. He was one of my mentors. I had been meeting with him, getting advice for years. And, and I didn't know it, but he said, can I have a copy of that? And so I gave him a copy and he sent it to Concordia Publishing House and said, I think this needs to be a book. That's so awesome. then Concordia Publishing House reached out to me and said, we'd love to turn this into a book. And I ended up, I think there's about 25 stories in there. In Harrison Town? That was your first book? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. That was my yes. first book. I love Harrison Town. I love, uh, I actually finished Steps Forward last night. Um, I love that. That's kind of the sequel to Harrison Town. But that was your, that was actually your first book. That, that was your first book. 1995, it was published and Very it was a nice. thrill. It was a thrill. What, what was that process like for you once it became, you know, started to be gel into a book? Was that kind of natural for you? Was that a little intimidating? What was that process of actually putting together, getting that first book ready for, for print? I wish I knew more back then <laughs> when it came to driving the process. I uh, I think I could have helped shape it a little more. But, uh, you know, writing is hard. It really is. It's it's a labor of love, but it is still labor. And Walther used to, CFW Walther, one of the founders of our church, used to compare writing sermons to giving birth. Now, no male should ever compare anything to giving birth because we don't know what that's like. But okay. he, he said it's like the travail. And so... It is challenging, and I'll tell you, especially during that time, my kids were little, so they were, you know, uh, four, five, six years old, Mm -hmm. so a lot of demands at home. I had a a busy, growing church, and just being a pastor, no matter what, is demanding, and and then I had all the attendant duties of being a pastor, whether it's teaching confirmation. At the time, I was on my own doing youth and all the meetings and everything. And then it's, well, hey, how about write a book, you know, and we have a deadline for you and it's got to come in. And during that time, uh, word processing was just kind of in the beginning, so it wasn't as slick. So it, I'm amazed that, I, by God's grace, I was able to get it done. Yeah, uh, I had several of the stories written, but not all of them. And so I had to then work ahead and develop some other series. So I enjoyed it. I loved it. And it really flowed. I mean, there were some times I thought, wow, this is truly what I love to do. Uh, so I think that was a real testing time for me to see if I was serious about writing, if I could do it. I know I had a lot to learn as I look back and even read the book. I think, wow, I, you know, is a, that is a first stab. <laughs> right. But um, it was, I had to do it, squirrel away the hours like in the early mornings and that type of thing, which I still do because life is, goes at such a pace. I've noticed the genre you tend to write in is, is predominantly more devotional in tone. You've written several devotions, Hope When Your Heart Breaks is one, which has touched me in, on a number of levels. I love that that book. I've read it. It's very good. Uh, I know more recently you've written Getting Through Grief, which I have not read, but I understand it's got kind of a devotional um, uh, component to it, I believe. Uh, and then also... Uh, Harrison Town Steps Forward, which are devotional stories, although they also really kind of fit into another genre of fiction, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But first of all, just tell me why the emphasis on, you know, devotional writing? Is that just a natural outgrowth of of you being in ministry, or do you actually have kind of a a passion for devotional writing? Yeah, I think everyone has their niche, and that's the thing. If you are uh, creative, if you're writing, do anything creative, you got to know who you are and find your niche and what you really love. 
And my kids used to ask me this too, I think, about like why I'm going to church and doing pastory things when I was, uh, you know, is that your job? And I think I perceived the question as, are you a Christian because you have this job as a pastor? And that's similar to what you're asking, you know, does my writing flow out of my life because I'm a pastor? Honestly, being a pastor flows out of my life because I love Jesus. And mm-hmm. my devotional niche in writing flows out of my life because out of all the things that have happened in my life, it is Jesus Christ who has made the greatest impact and difference and continues to on a daily basis. And because I have seen the remarkable grace of God and the presence of Jesus in my life, it has made such a mark on me that that is my niche. And it's my hope and prayer that everybody can receive and experience what I've received and experienced. So that's really, it it just flows from who I am. And one of the mantras I've had in my life from early on is my hope is to create usable faith. So we have a lot of complex theological books. We have a lot of thinking. But Jesus said to his disciples in John 13, now that you know this, well, why don't you go do it after he washed his disciples' feet? And so my goal is to communicate things that people can really grasp, understand, that change their lives, and they can pass on to others. And that's why my writing, I think, is pretty simple and understandable, and that's the whole goal. I, I want to write for regular people in normal life to give them tools and blessings to help them move forward and share that grace with others. Uh, I appreciate that so much. It, it's very relatable, your writing, and uh, certainly can reach a wider audience that way, too. But you communicate very much on on just kind of an everyday person's level, which is really nice. I know a lot of a lot of Christian living books or, or maybe more theological books, you know, tend to go over people's heads and are not really communicating uh, very clearly. So uh, I appreciate your your uh, line of thinking and the way you're communicating through your writing. It's really very good. You're not afraid to invest yourself in your stories, which I really appreciate too, because there are some of those, uh, especially when I was growing up, there's a lot of those uh, kind of Christian living books that uh, – I don't want to say surface level, that's not right, but it, it was largely just about, you know, maybe Bible stories or things like that, which is fine. We all need to learn those better and, and deeper. But I've found I've really enjoyed more of kind of the modern uh, Christian living writer that uh, seems to invest themselves more. And, you, and you're like that. Again, Very part of your uh, relatability is that you've put yourself into your stories on a number of levels uh, or, or aspects of your history or of your life. Was that intentional on a level, or was that, again, just a natural flow for you to to put yourself and elements of yourself in your stories, in your books? Well, I think think, uh, some of it was natural, and some, as you get a little older and reflect on your life, you realize that maybe God has given you some experiences that can help and bless others. And so I think you feel a little bit more bold and empowered to insert yourself. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you put yourself in the situation so you can take the heat or laugh at yourself, and then others can laugh with you. And so instead of right. singling others out, you single yourself out. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a device, too, to help break the ice and draw the reader in. Uh, so I, I got advice from a writer years and years ago. He read my first book and wrote back and he was just very kind. He said, write every day, write what you know. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you write, you insert yourself in the story, you're saying, well, this is what I know, this is what I experience, And I am pretty sure that we have many, many common experiences with others and others will relate to this. So as I said, break the ice a little bit and be the one who takes the fall or who is laughed at or who right. goes through the struggle. And uh, others will say, wow, that's me too. And that's what you want, right? That's right. what you want people to say, oh, that's me. That's me. And I think I can jump into these shoes and jump into this story and maybe take the same journey. Kind of along those lines, I want to bring up something here from uh, In Hope When Your Heart Breaks. There's uh, one devotional in there that caught my attention for some reason. This was a few months ago, but it expresses how we often feel when we're judged by other people. 
And you reference the story of Joseph, Mary's husband, uh, to draw some analogies with how he must have felt when he discovers Mary was pregnant, not not by him, by the Holy Spirit, and what kind of uh, social shaming he must have experienced, you know, at that time as word got out in the community. And, you know, it, uh, I was kind of fascinated by this because it's perhaps kind of an underexplored angle of, of that story, maybe. Uh, and I thought it was good that you built a devotion uh, around that. And this is kind of very uh, current, I guess you could say. That you know, social shaming has certainly been a big issue in uh, in our world today, with all the all the fallout from the pandemic and masks and vaccines and all of that. It's a reminder too that as writers, you know, words are so important. What words we choose, how we tell the stories, and words are like are like weapons in in many ways. Can be, you know, just visit any. Facebook, Facebook post or social media post, you know, these days, and you see people, people, uh, oh, you're not always responding <laughs> with the best choice of words. And this, kind of, I don't know why this came up to me, but the idea of words being kind of weaponized, it reminds me of a song by a Christian recording artist, uh, Bob Bennett from the 80s, uh, a song called Heart of the Matter. And this, this verse here I'm going to read always sticks out in my mind for some reason. The verse here says, hearts alternate between tears and rage, a short journey through the human zoo in this mortal cage. Words like weapons ask no questions as they kill. People wounded once dancing, now they're standing still. You know, reminder that words matter, you know, and in the church, of course, regard to Bible translation and, you know, every word is important, going back to the original language. Um, and writing words are important. How do you kind of uh, develop that in your writing? You know, when you're looking at your words, do you obsess over every word? Are you one that's very confident in kind of getting your message out and just let it flow? How is that choice of words for you so important? I think I work on the words more now than ever. Mm -hmm. And there was a time in my early writing where I think it just, I let it flow a little more. Mm -hmm. But uh, as I, I grew as a writer and I continue to grow and I keep trying to learn from other writers and uh, it's an ongoing process, but I think I weigh my words a little more and try to use words that capture people's hearts, that spur the imagination, put words together that do that, that reach a little deeper. So I honestly ask myself the question, how can I say that better? How can I dig a little deeper? How can I go beyond the surface mm-hmm. to really reach a point that uh, you know may be more helpful to the reader? And it's it's not just the words, but as I said, putting words together and maybe pulling out words that are more common to put something else in, not being too complex or flamboyant just to make a sentence, but uh, really stewarding words to reach people for a very specific point. I think that's the key. So yeah, um, Walter Wangeren wrote a great story, an account about in the rag man is a book he wrote Mm -hmm. about either words demolishing or building up. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, my hope and prayers, my words can reach people deeply and build them up. You know, I love that because you have a very humble, calm, empathetic approach that comes across in your writing. Your, your personality is like that, and it comes across in your writing and in your ministry. You know, but yet you don't compromise the gospel message either. You know, you don't water that down. You don't uh, make it light and fluffy. But it, I think, is enhanced by your calm, empathetic approach in your writing. And I, that's just one of the aspects I love, you know, too many people I think get caught up in the words and then lose sight of the message or the people you're actually communicating to. I think it was Andy Stanley who made some kind of uh, comment to the effect of, you know, when, when we, uh, what was it? When we lose, when the view becomes more important than the you, then we've lost perspective on ministering to, to people. And, um, you know, regardless of what you think of Andy Stanley, I think it's, I think that's a well praised point. And, and certainly during the pandemic, we've seen a lot of that where a lot of issues and, you know, masks or things have become more important than, than people themselves uh, or have kind of been disguised by that was the reason for 
caring for people and, and there's been, you know, ulterior motives by that. But, but that choice of words is so important in, in being able to communicate clearly and be, be sensitive to people, be caring to people, be loving to people, especially in, in ministry. Yeah, people are most important. And that's God sets that pace. That's what I love about it. God so loved the world, right? That's mm-hmm. the people that yeah. he gave his only son. So whatever you do, it really should be to serve others. Uh, you know, self-serving writing isn't really enjoyable to read. So uh, if if there's a sincere desire to say, I want to serve others with what I write, I think that really comes across. Just like a podcast, you know, you're serving others, trying to mm-hmm. inspire and uh, give creatives permission to be creative. That's a great thing. And I think people receive that. My guest today is Mike Newman, pastor and author. Let's get into the power of stories and storytelling. Briefly hear from your introduction to Steps Forward. I would like to suggest, you wrote here, that you think about using this book to take advantage of the power of what a story can do in the lives of the people around you. Stories do something special. They make you think. They draw you into an experience and surprise you. They catch you off guard and change your outlook. What ways was storytelling a part of your life growing up? Oh, like I said, that's all we did as kids. You know, it was all stories, all imagination. And uh, we didn't watch TV that much, so it wasn't as much TV stories. And my I, I hated to read when I was a kid, and my dad got us to read by buying us comic books. Oh, so, yes. So, you know, we'd read some of those things, and it expanded my vocabulary and did many things. But What was your favorite comic book? Oh, I don't know. I had so many. The superheroes. <laughs> superheroes, and, yes. If they're back in style now, the whole oh, yes. Marvel and DC universes. But I think, and those probably helped, you know, those helped mm-hmm. spur on the storytelling. But I will say one thing that my brother and I, my older brother and I loved to do was, because uh, he did this too, to write parodies and satires and oh, funny humor we loved humor yeah and i still love humor i've written some real serious books but i love humor so that was a real big part of the whole movement in telling the story too and, and it, you know it's great when people people laugh so that's an, one reaction that spurs you on to keep telling those stories well you do have some humor in in harrison town and steps forward i think that comes through there so that's really really neat there um harrison town and its sequel steps forward these are these are two of my favorite books of yours that i read and i know they're geared towards younger readers generally but uh for our listeners here you know in these two books readers are transported to this very i don't know mayberry-esque um town of harrison and meet a cast of characters centered around the uh, the Thorpe family. Different adventures and lessons ensue. Um, you know, and I think one of the things that draws me to these books is that that fictional element. That's always what I wanted to write more of. I, uh, I guess, kind of like you, fell into writing you know more more serious toned or real life stuff, um, but always enjoyed fictional writing. But I like you leaning into your imagination a bit um, to create the community. Uh, where you can't wait to spend some time with these characters in this in this place, but Harrison Town, as you mentioned at the beginning, has some basis in real life, doesn't it? Uh, tell me a little bit about that. It sure does. And after it's funny when I started telling these stories, mm-hmm. people said, "I want to visit there. I really want to go." I said, "Well, it, it's real, and you'll encounter a lot of the things I talk about." But yeah. I don't know if you'll meet Ernest Thorpe, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it, it's a it's a great setting. It really struck me. And while I was up there, actually, we were on vacation. I used to, you know, starting out in ministry, you work fifty weeks a year, and then you get two weeks off, and I just take a breath. I'm exhausted. And as I was up there, it was such a place of replenishment, a joyful place for our family. Our younger daughter learned to walk while she was there. I mean, great, great memories. And as I lived life there, we, we would go to the fair and we would go to church there. And Pastor Graff is the only real name in the stories. And right. he gave me permission to do that because it was just fun interaction with him. But it, it just made me think, hey, this could be the place. And what better way to break down barriers for listeners than to have a kid go through some of these things. And so right. it's kind of like a children's message. It's masqueraded as fiction, 
maybe geared toward young people, but mm-hmm. it's the adults who probably get the most out of it. Right. right. Because there's some pretty deep biblical teaching and lessons in there and some challenging life situations as well. And of course, some humorous things, but that's how it all grew in that little town. And, uh, you know, Ernest is kind of an amalgamation of a lot of different qualities and characters. Yeah. Tell me, tell me about Ernest. Uh, you know, I know he's, he's a runner and especially in steps forward, it starts and kind of ends with his, his running, uh, in, in high school. And, uh, you know, you're a runner. So how how much of you is a part of of Ernest or stories from you growing up or what have you? There's probably some of me in Ernest and it's probably some of what I wished I might have done mm. or been daring enough to do. Mm-hmm. So uh built that in there and yeah, his running he was encouraged to run by another character who actually is based on a friend of mine. Wow, wow. And so all the all the characters have a little bit of characters of people I know, and that's, sure. that's a lot of fun. Uh, some of the names I use are actually friends' names who let me use them for different oh, roles. It was great. kind of fun to do that. So that's the beauty, I think, when, you, when, when fiction has enough fact in it, mm-hmm. it's easier to come to life. You're not just making it all up. Right. And so— You're or, drawing upon things from your own life and yeah, investing yeah. that in these stories. Sure, things you've seen, people you know. Some of Ernest's friends are based on kids from either my childhood or my wife's childhood, you mm-hmm. know, characteristics that they would have— I love it. So yeah, it was a lot of fun to do that. Yeah, these are great books. I, I I hope you do more in this series because it is a fun place to visit. They're fun characters to uh to get to know. They grow throughout the series. Um and and it's just always kind of fun to spend time like I said, Mayberry esque or who was it on the back of these wrote uh, oh Paul Meyer wrote um uh, Harrison Town comes to life in these pages just as vividly as does Garrison Keillor's Lake Wobegon, and maybe more so. I thought that was another great analogy. Um, it's like that. It's that place you want to just go and spend some time with, with characters, which obviously drew, you know, grew out of your, 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 uh, vacation visits. And that's right. It's fun. There's a few little surprises too, where one story connects back to another one and yeah it's kind of fun little surprises for the reader i love that uh for our listeners it's it's these are kind of anecdotal kind of little individual stories like i said they're devotional in 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 style a little bit but it also they all connect and it still forms a book a cohesive book the characters grow and develop and go through different things uh interact between the stories and things like that so um and in fact, you you break the fourth wall a bit, as they say in in TV. Uh, I think it's on your page, Harrison Town, where you write about vacation experience. I uh, do break the fourth wall. Yeah, that, that's uh, that's the lake that my wife and I and our daughters stay by. It's a small lake, good for all lake type activities. It's also a lake that has some of the biggest muskies you'll ever find. For those of you who are not fishermen, a muskie is at the top of the food chain. That fish runs what goes on beneath the waves. He's big and he's got teeth. And what a catch he is to fishing enthusiasts. And that kind of leads into a funny story with uh, with Ernest, which I thought was was really cool. But So you're actually a characters in the story, you and your family. Right. A few stories, just me, my wife, and our little girls, and we're up there and experiencing it, and then it flows into Ernest. And yeah. And, and it helped to... Uh, when I was telling these stories live to people, then I could bridge the acquaintance and the connection. Hey, this is where we go, and let me tell you more about it. And then we'd have our Ernest Thorpe character and all his other friends. And, and I, I, Ernest is kind of the protagonist, I guess you could say, of the stories. I mean, I know it, it weaves in and goes, you know, back to the parents a lot and things like that, the pastor. But it all kind of, uh, I guess, really centers around Ernest the most of both books, really. Yeah, really Ernest's perspective and experiences of everything from his little sister. And, and, yeah. and I won't spoil, you know, I don't want to give you spoiler right. alerts. But, exactly. Uh, yeah, he's the guy. Um, but then when I when I read that uh, in Harrison Town, I thought, well, you know, really, you, you're the narrator of this. It's, it's from your perspective um, and to some degree. So I thought that was kind of kind of neat. Ernest is a character that really stands out for me. I think he's just a fun character. And me having teenage boys, I can relate to a number of the stories that were threaded in there. Uh, and, you know, when we first meet him in Harrison Town, uh, he's a sixth grader, I believe. He was in trouble for hijinks at the county fair. 
Uh, and when we leave him at the end of uh, steps forward, he's grown a bit physically, spiritually. What was that process like, kind of taking a character and developing it through these stories? Was yeah. that an uh, intentional journey? Yeah, he becomes a freshman in college. Well, you know, uh, you start writing these things, and then you grow. And uh, as I related them to people live over a period of a number of years, Ernest would have to grow. You know, he'd have to grow up. So it was very interesting and just thinking about, well, what is he going through now? And what are the new challenges? And honestly, I was kind of excited as he went through high school, all the high school issues that happen. And uh, there are Sunday school teachers and other teachers that have used these books with their youth groups and with their Sunday school oh, groups. that's great. There's like, and grandmas and grandpas love them because they say, I want to buy a book that maybe my grandkids will read and, and they'll benefit them in their faith. And so they've used them. But, you know, Ernest just encounters everything kids encounter in grade school, high school, and then freshman year in college, same thing. So I got actually excited about Ernest's growth and what was he going to encounter next and what was it going to be like going to the next step? How would he get make it to college? That's expensive. How can that happen? Right. And what's going to happen in his first year in school? And so, yeah, that was, that was a lot of fun. That's great. I love the, uh, the story about the Ford F-150, too. So. Oh, I thought that was a neat little uh, part. I really encourage uh, listeners to check out Harrison Town and Steps Forward. They're just fun books, but they have some spiritually challenging things in them. Really, really fun reads. I'm talking with Mike Newman, pastor and author. I read There Is No God, or Is There?, uh, recently he wrote in 2014. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. I love the way you integrated your family history into this. It's really about uh, your family history or part of your own personal story is in there. And for a short book, it's about 100, 100 pages yeah, or so. very short. Yeah. There's a lot of depth to it. There's a lot to really think about, ruminate on. Why did you write, write this book? Uh, what was your goal in writing There Is No God? So, Intentionally short, and even some of my more recent devotional books, very short devotions, even the stories for Harrison, because I know people's attention spans, right? And not a lot mm. of people read, so make right. it short to the point, not too complicated. But I wrote There Is No God because I, this, well, one, the, the huge challenge of suffering in people's lives. Yeah. And trying to make sense of it, trying to make sense of loss, of severe and horrible things going on. Mm -hmm. So in the face of just extreme suffering, loss, devastation, people ask questions like, wait a minute, um, how can there be a God in the middle of this? Or they're just angry, angry at God, like he, he must not exist or be cruel or foolish or whatever it is because of all this is happening. So it can disillusion people regarding faith. And that's a huge issue. I've yeah. never met an atheist who just analytically determined to be an atheist. There may be some out there, but most people who have sworn off God's existence have done so because they have experienced something terrible in their lives, something awful with a loved one, or just have generally looked at the world and seen the chaos and became disillusioned. So I thought, uh, that needs to be addressed. And honestly, I've had to wrestle with those questions. I think, I think every person should wrestle with those questions. And I happen to wrestle with them for many reasons in my life, but one of the reasons was my grandfather's murder. So that really led to saying, I think I can get in the shoes of people who have had devastated, devastating losses, losses and walk through this with them and talk about it. It's a really deeply personal book. Uh, again, short, but it's, it's very powerful. I mean, that Talk about your grandfather showing you that that stack of photos, and it seems like that was kind of a pivotal moment for for you, even in your young life. A lot kind of happened in that moment, or transpired from that moment, and you know the the truck hanging off the edge of the cliff. I mean, I can just picture that. Um, even though I know you don't still have you know a copy of that photo, but wow, what a what a raw, vulnerable moment. That obviously changed you. 
Yeah, it was a very memorable moment for me, and especially when it took place in just the shadow of my 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 other grandfather's tragic right, death. Right. And it really stood out. I think what it did is really planted seeds. I was young, but I think it really planted seeds of this dynamic we all experience of tragedy, chaos, loss, but also the transcendent and the the miraculous and the good presence of God. And so uh, probably didn't reflect on it as much until later, but you know, mm. there were a couple of puzzle pieces that God placed in my life. Yeah. It seems that you, you have in a lot of your writing, you know, grief, anger, heartbreak, end of life, death-related issues. And after having read There Is No God, I can't help wondering if that time period for you was kind of the impetus for some of these issues, the, the murder of your grandfather. I mean, I don't want to say obsessed with these issues, but obviously focused on kind of growing through some of these issues. Is is that a fair statement? Or is a lot of your books that are written around these things stem from some of your personal experiences? Yeah. You know, you wonder sometimes, again, this, this is with reflection. When mm. I started writing, I started writing those stories and poems and various things. But as I get older, one thing I, I realize is that my life has been baked. It's been cooked and simmered in struggle, difficulty, and loss. I had a very turbulent family life growing up. Mm -hmm. I haven't written extensively about that. I mention it in my latest book about uh, getting through grief. And I will write about that more at some point probably, but I was really just steeped in constant turbulence, constant dissonance, loss, and then these tragic events that punctuated my life. So my first 20 years of life had that theme. And uh, I always prayed, Lord, you know, get me through it. I mean, it was tough. It was tough. Uh, And so you're in the middle of the battle. But as I looked back, I thought, I think God may be preparing me for something. Maybe he's seasoning me for a purpose in this. And I saw that coming to fruition in my early years of ministry and walking with people through grief and pain and being able to bring what you described, maybe an empathetic voice to people's lives. And now as I grow even older and I witness more things going on, like mass shootings and people losing people in such terrible ways, I think, you know what? God has positioned me. He's seasoned my life in a way where I can speak into those with some integrity because I get it. I really get it. Stephen King once said, if you want to be a writer, you must do two things above all, read a lot and write a lot. Have you read a lot? Oh, I love reading it. Now, see, when I was a kid, I didn't like it as much, but I think I really started devouring books in late high school Mm -hmm. when I was getting into great storytellers like Mark Twain, Charles Dickens. I read a lot of philosophy. That led to a major in philosophy. Then in college, you read a lot. But then I read a lot for pleasure, too. Lots of biographies. I still read uh, just, I I can't read enough. My idea of a great vacation is what I did in Harrison for all those years is, get a whole bunch of books. And this is before Kindle. I'd pack up a suitcase of books and I'd go on vacation. My kids would know that for about five, six hours of every day, I am going to be reading. reading. And it's just a pleasure to me. Yes. Favorite book or books? Oh, I I love so many. I think a couple that have made big marks on me are Henry Nouwen's The Return of the Prodigal Son and In the Name of Jesus. And then a book, uh, R.T. Kendall wrote a book, God Meant It for Good, which it's not a high piece of literature, but mm-hmm. wow, it's penetrating. It's so good. And uh, there, there are several others that I could list. I've been really enjoying um, some writing by Malcolm Gladwell lately and Mitch Album, great oh, storyteller yes. as well. been yes. enjoying that. And I just finished uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. You know, some have oh, said it's wow. the greatest novel ever written. And my philosophy teacher told me that back in high, uh, in college, and I just never read it, but I just got through it. And I think so. Uh, yeah, really, we could have a whole show about that book. 
But Absolutely. those are the kind of things that even feed me and teach me about writing as well. Absolutely. Do you have a favorite of classic literature? I know you mentioned Dick, Dickens as well. Well, Dostoevsky, I guess, Dostoevsky was the one. was good. Dickens, uh, you know, Twain isn't classic maybe, but he, maybe he's moved into that. I really enjoyed reading Mark, Mark Twain. Too. Yeah, excellent. Uh, I'm a big fan of Dickens too. I read Christmas Carol every uh, every year or every other year because I always get something new out of that. There's just something about that story that always captures me. Briefly, just the life you crave. You know, I, you've, you've taken what, what appears to be kind of a lot of analogies and stories in there actually has a little deeper concept to it. Tell me just briefly about that. Yeah, that book is a multifaceted book, and I don't know if everyone sees it or appreciates it like I do. I'm not sure, but what I tried to do is several things, maybe too much, but uh, I wanted to bring people through what I think is one of my—it's one of my favorite books of the Bible, the book of Daniel. I think it just Mm. has so much to say to our day and age. It's got so much to say when it comes to who we are as God's people. Uh, Even what God was doing there was amazing. The fact that it's written in the Aramaic instead of Hebrew, it's the language of the world. Just, just Most of it's in Aramaic. It's amazing. So I tried to take people through the book of Daniel in The Life You Crave. In addition, I wanted to communicate in an understandable way some of the pillars of faith for people who are exploring Christianity. And so it's shaped around Luther's six chief parts from his small catechism, but it's done in the way of key questions. So, you, I mean, you can use, use it as a new member class, but it really brings people through what I hope is a way of understanding just the, the basics of faith and the, the key points. Then I also tried to make it kind of a narrative book with some stories mm-hmm. and uh, bring people through as well. All my books have little devotional sections at the end right. you could use for personal study or small groups. And so I wanted to incorporate that as well. So, yeah, I tried to do a lot in that book, uh-huh. and uh, I hope people are blessed by it. Yeah, I love the way you, you wove stuff in there. Um, There's also in each chapter a mystery of the Bible that I try to reveal. Uh, now, not everyone notices that, but that's yes. another thing I try to do. I, I love that. And, you know, you do put a lot of clear, clearly a lot of thought and, and effort into your books, and there's so much kind of woven into a lot of these, whether it's Harrison Town or uh, Hoping Your Heart Breaks or or, um, or this one, Crave. Uh, it's, it's just, I, I love that. Your, your books are rich in a number of levels, even though they, they may appear a little more simpler on the surface because you've got, again, that very relatable, easygoing writing style, but I love that how much is really threaded through your books. It's, it's wonderful stuff. Um, all right. Uh, this show is all about creative Christians. You know, the church sometimes hasn't done the best job of, of, of uh, integrating Christians, or I'm sorry, integrating creatives. Um, briefly, how, how, can, um, how can the church do a better job of utilizing the talents of creative Christians? Yeah, I think, you know, first of all, it's just remembering who is the most creative ever. And that's first article, right? I believe in God, the Father, Almighty, maker, creator of heaven and earth. So God started with creativity, and he has fashioned us in his image and likeness. And we are, the Bible says, his co-workers, right? So there's so much in the scriptures that point to us as participating with God Mm -hmm. in this beautiful creativity that he's done in in making a mark on the world. And I think the early church captured that very, very well. Uh, And through through the centuries, really, because the focus, the cradle of creativity, music and art, uh, was in the church. And honestly, I think that still exists to a degree. We did have some periods of time where it became a little dry, analytical, and business-like. But if you watch American Idol, where do a lot of those singers come from? Oh, I started Ooh. singing in church, right? Yeah. So I think the church still has the arts in many ways. They've expanded. Uh, so, you know, banners, the modern banner, I think, is the designs placed on screens or the images and graphics that can be woven into a worship service. Music is still a huge part of it. Yes, There's a lot of great outlets. Uh, we would do video arts camps for kids. I, so that's a way to engage uh, kids into the faith as well. We've had, we, we would have art camp with various varieties of 
media, you know, drawing and charcoal and watercolors and that type of thing. Right. So I think to bring all those gifts in is really important because people are engaged and connected in different ways. And it's not just by propositional thinking. I think that's actually a small number of people. Yeah. I think more people are engaged through the arts. And so if we can steward those, those are God-created gifts and connect people with them and lift them up and maybe even see the breadth of ministry that can happen, uh, we'll reach more people with the good news of Jesus. And honestly, I think COVID has helped that because... We kind of, as the church, distilled things down to, okay, let's do 60 minutes of lecture and responsive reading. And there's some music in there, but I think COVID has said, wait, we got to do other things in other ways. And whether it's through the video production mm -hmm. and that type of communication and social media. Mm -hmm. So maybe God is, that's my prayer is that he's teaching us his ways to reach more people. I think you're absolutely right. And that, that's a whole other topic for another day. Uh, last question. What are you working on now as a writer? Uh, any new books in the works? A, a third Harrison Town book, maybe? Some books are begging for sequels, like uh, Steps Forward Steps needs another forward. one, right? I think Gotta so. Do that. I think so. And uh, There Is No God ends with a cliffhanger. So it does indeed. There is a, I have like notes on a, a follow up on that one. I would love sequel. to read that. And, uh, but right now I am working on, believe it or not, a devotional for middle school and high school boys. Oh, excellent. And short devotions, really short. Yeah. And there's going to be, it'll be connected with an app so kids can listen to them as well. And uh, my hope is that to engage like uh, boys with Jesus mm -hmm. and see how Jesus shapes their lives and, and uh, helps them with a lot of practical things. That's a tough time of life. It is. So there's a counterpart author who's going to be writing one for girls, and we hope that in that very tender, sensitive age, especially nowadays where there's all this comparison and you're been being bombarded and discipled by media and culture, that we can help bring some great clarity, stability, joy, and peace to that age group. So Excellent. it's going to be fun. People want to read your books? Where can they get them? Yeah, they can go to my website is mnewman.org. So M-N-E-W-M-A-N, Newman, mnewman.org. But they can also go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Walmart even has some. So oh, yeah, you can go to any place where you get books and just uh, Michael W. Newman and you'll find them. Mike, thank you. This has been wonderful getting to talk with you, getting to know a little bit of your creative side. I've known you as a Christian, of course, fellow Christian, but... Uh, now I'm getting to know you better as a fellow creative. So this has really been neat. Um, the time's kind of flown by here. I appreciate you accepting the invitation to come on and uh, be my first guest and help launch creative Christians with some integrity. Really appreciate that on a solid foundation. We'll be praying for your creativity, uh, your leadership as district president. Um, thank you, Mike, for sharing your creative gifts with us today. And, and please just keep writing. Hey, thanks, Tim. It's a joy to be with you. Nice job for the very first episode. Hey, we're underway now. A few reflections to close out today's episode. You know, today we've been talking about writing and the use of words to tell a story and convey meaning. On page 148 of Hope Where Your Heart Breaks, Mike Newman writes these words. You see why it is so important to read and hear God's Word. It is powerful and life-restoring. It speaks to your deepest needs and drowns out the noise of a condemning world. It is filled with God's love and drains away the mean and unsympathetic static of people who don't know what they're talking about. It also helps fill you with compassion so you can love others as God first loved you. Instead of getting caught up in a chain reaction of condemnation, you can break the chain of judgment with a heart and life filled with Jesus' unconditional love. I absolutely love that. Words of Mike Newman in Hope When Your Heart Breaks. You know, we're living in a time when there is a lot of unrest in the world, among family, friends, even among fellow Christians, sad to say. It is so encouraging to have a calming voice like Mike Newman, who uses his words to convey empathy for people, who proclaims the hope of the gospel, and let's face it, that has the best words of all, right? The word of God. 
and helps point others to Christ. Without mandates, pridefulness, or superiority. Just a gentle, humble voice of reason, faith, love, and hope in a world that seeks far too often to pull us in the opposite direction. In recent years, I've seen how too many people, even Christians, pastors, get caught up in the importance of the words themselves, ultimately sacrificing people in the process. But you know, that's why words are there in the first place, as tools to communicate with people, each other. When we lose sight of the purpose of our words, serving God through serving other people around us in love, we've lost sight of ministry. I hope today's episode might be a reminder of the power of your own words, whether you're a writer or not, and I pray you may use them not, as Bob Bennett warned, words like weapons, ask no questions as they kill, but that you might use them with empathy toward those around you, to uplift, to give hope, and to show love, much like the words and writings of Mike Newman, truly one of the creative Christians. That's it for this debut episode of Creative Christians. Thank you for joining me for this first episode. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to this podcast so you can get each and every new episode as it comes out. If you've got suggestions for how I can improve the show, I'd love to hear that too. Drop me a message or an email. You can also help me to be a part of this program's success by helping to spread the word. Tell others about Creative Christians. Share this podcast on social media with your church or ministry. Help me to get the word out. I truly value each and every one of you as a listener. And I hope you'll join me again for my next episode. Next time, I'll be talking with an old friend of mine whom I've worked with on several video projects over the years, but have never actually met face-to-face. It's true. Voice talent for film trailers and video productions, actor, filmmaker, musician, author, and former minister, the multi-talented Monty Reed, joins us all the way from Sweden. It's going to be a fun one, I assure you. Monty's a fun guy. That's next time on Creative Christians. Until then, I'm Tim Risto. Stay creative and stay in God's Word. Blessings. Creative Christians is produced by Tim Risto. Special thanks to Reverend Michael Newman, Point of Grace Church in Pflugerville, Texas, and Tracy Risto. Creative Christians is an audio production of Tim Risto Productions. Visit timristo.com to learn more. That's T-I-M-R-I-S-T-O-W dot com.